This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello and welcome to The Twilight Show. Thanks for joining me. Today, my special guest is Hania Bosiek, who is a teacher and teacher trainer based in Switzerland. Our topic for today is English and cultural awareness through art. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to The Twilight Show, everyone. I'm Graham Stanley, speaking to you live from Mexico City. As I mentioned earlier, on today's show, I'll be talking to Hania Bosiek about English and cultural awareness through art. Hania is a Londoner of Polish descent, and she's lived and worked in Zurich, Switzerland, since 1980. She's an English teacher at the Canton Schule Wiekedon Zurich, and was until 2020 a teacher trainer at IFE, the a teacher training institute at the University of Zurich. Her primary area of interest and research focuses on culture, notably art and literature, as an empowerer of communication, global empathy, and critical thought. Art and literature are fundamental elements of her own secondary teaching and teacher training, as well as a topic of her talks. She's co-author of English Through Art, published by Helbling in 2011, and is a regular national and international speaker. And I'll be talking to Hania about her work and more after the Teachers Talk radio news. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the Eaton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit eatonx.com to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. A £1,000 cash incentive and a campaign to raise the profile of childcare workers in England has been launched as part of a recruitment drive. According to the BBC, thousands of extra nursery workers and childminders are needed as the government plan to expand funded hours begins. 
The Department for Education says that more than 100,000 working parents of two-year-olds have already registered for the April rollout. However, early years charities say the campaign to recruit is too late. By September 2025, all eligible preschool children of working parents from the age of nine months will be able to access 30 hours of term time childcare. Research suggests that the number of childcare providers is currently falling as childminders leave the role, although the number of places remains roughly stable. Data suggests that almost 28,000 early years specialists will be needed to meet the rise in demand, an expansion of 8%. The BBC also reports that staff at Scotland's exam body will take strike action at the end of February over a pay dispute. Around 400 workers will stage two 24-hour stoppages and the action will also include an overtime ban, a ban on weekend working and a ban on accruing time off in lieu. The union said the industrial action would have a major impact on the SQA's ability to prepare for exam season. But the SQA itself said it had contingency plans in place and that the strike would not have any impact at all. The Herald in Scotland also reports on calls from some quarters to raise the school starting age. A motion filed by the Glasgow Kelvin MSP calls for a national conversation on early years education and argues that a new approach could help tackle Scotland's long-standing educational attainment gap. The proposal to raise the starting age secured cross-party support in less than 24 hours. It's not the first time that the SNP have called for an increase in the starting age for pupils, but with recent concerns that the school system in Scotland is not helping to close the gap between disadvantaged pupils and their non-disadvantaged peers, the plans have appeared again. Under the plans, children would start school at six rather than four or five, and a kindergarten stage for three to six-year-olds would be introduced, increasing the amount of early years education by 12 months, replacing primary one. The kindergarten stage would focus on learning through play. Full details of the proposal can be read online in a variety of media outlets. Finally, Schools Week covers demands from the University of Cambridge to delay the new teacher training framework. The university has said it lacks confidence in the new framework and suggests a delay of at least a year. The initial teacher training and early career framework or ITT-ECF was unveiled by the Department for Education at the start of February. The ITT-ECF will combine and replace the currently separate ITT core content and the ECF from September 2025. The university called for the change to be implemented no sooner than September 2026, if at all. This would allow for further consultation, it says, and revision as the new framework was just a tweak on the current one and was a wasted opportunity. The education faculty at Cambridge also claims that the framework sets unclear and contradictory objectives for ITT providers. In the longer term, the university says a framework should be developed and led by a non-party political cross-sector expert team. The new framework has already divided opinions in the schools community and many have taken to social media to express concerns. The Department for Education have declined to comment. 
This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Welcome back, everybody, and welcome in particular to my special guest, Hania. Hania, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, I can, loud and Brilliant. clear. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd love yeah, to know yeah. what you've been up to. It's quite late afternoon, isn't it, where you are? Yes, it is. Um, well, in the immediate, I've been looking through some of my presentation notes and PowerPoint presentations about art and cultural awareness. Um, apart from that, I had a long train journey across Europe yesterday. Um, so I'm true to my international roots and to the fact that I can't really sit in one place for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so I usually ask my guests to start off with, Hania, about how they became teachers. I'd love to hear about what it was that attracted you to education, to being a teacher, and also how you ended up in Switzerland. Um, I think I'd actually use that verb ended up for teaching <laughs> itself <laughs> because um, I, I never chose to become a teacher um, mm. and when I was at, at school and then at university I graduated from University College London in French and English the last thing I wanted to do was to become a teacher I could not imagine anything more unattractive than spending my evenings and weekends correcting um, notes and exams written by spotty teenagers. Uh, I was on my way to becoming an interpreter. And after I finished my degree in London, I went to Switzerland for two years to learn some more German. I'd done German at school. I hadn't done any at university because I wanted to be an interpreter. And I was teaching English at a Swiss grammar school to pay my way and in the evenings I was at the Zurich Interpreter School and I discovered two things. Um, first of all, I did not want to be an interpreter. Um, I like to take part in conversations. I like to have influence, not power, but influence. And I realized this as an interpreter, um, you actually had nothing to say. You were just repeating the same thing that somebody else said but in another language. And I discovered that teaching um, as it was and is in Switzerland, is actually highly attractive. Um, but I decided to teach French and not English. And so I had to go back to university, redo another um, degree, get all my teaching qualifications. And it's only when I'd been teaching for about 10 years that I then picked up English again, got further qualifications um, and was teaching English. And then I fell into teacher training at Zurich University training up teachers in uh, Zurich grammar schools. So I never chose to become a teacher, um, but if you ask me today, what would I do if I could live my life again? I would become a teacher. I think it's, it's a wonderful profession. It really is. And I loved teacher training and helping people become their best teacher, acquiring their own teacher persona. So that's it. I ended up teaching, but in, um, in a very positive way. Oh, great. Yeah, I think uh, your story is not the only one I've heard that is a bit like that. I think there's a lot of people who end up falling into teaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, but then, uh, then love it. Uh, uh, it's, 
it's in my experience, it's not that many people who decide from a very early age that they want to be teachers, although there are some as well. That's interesting. One of the things is Sorry. If, if you're if you're um let's say an, a native English speaker somewhere in a non-native speaking environment, you start thinking, how am I going to earn my money? What can I do? And many people fall into teaching that way. Um and discover that you know it, it, it's a wonderful profession yeah yes exactly definitely so that's interesting that you started off by teaching french and then you moved to teaching english was it through you feeling that there were more opportunities for english teachers in zurich than than french teachers no. that you decided that or um not really. I mean, I'd, I'd chosen to study French, I think, when I was 14. I always wanted to speak, um, study French. Um, and that's why I sort of went to university to study it. Mm -hmm. My second degree was also in French. But it was while I was teaching um, that I became interested in teacher training. And I was at a right. point when I was teaching equal amounts of French and English. Mm -hmm. um, there was a teacher training job up at the university. And I thought, go for it go for it so i i went into it i'd, I'd always love french literature french language mm -hmm. um and i was against doing the pragmatic right thing which was teaching english although yeah. as my as my, you know, my one's mum at some point my mum actually said to me why do you want to teach french there'll be just so many more people who want to speak english one day and she, <laughs> she said that about you know, like about 40 years ago and she was absolutely right <laughs> interesting honey yeah. um there's a bit of a clicking sound i'm wondering if uh, it's from your microphone and whether you, it's moving um uh, well, I'd, I'll I tell you know. something about me. My students would tell you this. Um, I can't stay still. I gesticulate a lot. So I've, um, is that better now? Yes, much better. Gone? Yeah, the clicking's gone. Good. That just means that I was moving too much and my microphone was probably touching the zip. Ruffling against, or something. yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. You're jumping and stuff. Yeah, right. So I shall, All right. I shall control my movements. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll let you know if it comes back. But, yes, uh, that's thank you. fine now. Yes. That's good. Yeah, good. So, um, yeah. So, uh, the focus of today's show is on English and cultural awareness through art, mm. and so I'd love to start by asking you about cultural awareness and global issues, which I think mm -hmm. is another thing you're very interested in, and yes. how this can be combined with the teaching and learning of of languages of English. Yep. Okay. Um, let me, if it's the right place to do so, take mm -hmm. a step backward. Sure. Um, you mentioned the book, English Through Art, which came yeah. out in 2011. Um, mm -hmm. And at that point, I was um, very much into using art as a tool in mm -hmm. order to learn English. Um, so using all kinds of paintings. I, I use paintings, um, haven't got anything against photographs or anything like that. It's just that I'm perfect. Personally, I'm, I'm really interested in art. Yeah. Um, and I was using that and finding pictures to talk about chapters of grammar and pronunciation and everything. And that was 2011. Mm -hmm. And then um, over time, um, two things happened. First of all, I started using art to illustrate literature. Mm -hmm. And then art to write poetry, you know, ecrastic poems. Mm -hmm. um, and I started seeing more potential. 
And then the key year, this is for the global issues and cultural awareness, is the year that we met mm-hmm. back in Montevideo, 2018. Right. I've been asked by the Anglo Institute to speak about English through art. Right. Um, and I was sitting there in Montevideo thinking, now, I cannot use European art to talk to a room full of about 100 or 150 Uruguayan teachers. Um, mm-hmm. I think it would be arrogant. I think it would be not boring, but simply not using potential. And I started, I spent two weeks looking at all the art I could find in, in Uruguay. I'd already been in Buenos Aires. Um, uh-huh. And all my generic ideas for teaching language, I found what, there was a picture in so many different galleries to illustrate exactly the idea that I'd been using a Van Gogh for, that I'd been using a Jericho for. Um, uh-huh. And I had this wonderful light bulb experience. I put up a picture of a young girl. Um, and my yeah. idea was to talk about um, my life then and now, sort of looking at past tenses and, and present mm-hmm. tenses. And I put up a picture of um, a young girl from a, Europe, uh, from a Uruguay museum. And there was this amount of energy in the room everybody mm. started talking to each other saying, oh i remember this picture i remember that. and i said i asked could you tell me a bit more about this picture and they said yes you know uh, my parents took me to this see this picture we talked about it at school and i suddenly thought everybody has their own culture mm. everybody has their own um cultural memories their own cultural nostalgia um, and they want to use their pictures to talk about my generic ideas or to use my generic ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, but the thing is, they're going to be using English. So English mm. from, from English being in 2011, the aim of my ideas, it was English that became the tool and art was no longer a tool. English was the tool to understand each other. And I thought, goodness, this Uruguayan person going to Europe and showing this picture um, is going to be saying so much about themselves and about their country. And that's what we need to share. We need to share our ideas. We need to share our attitudes to things. And we can use paintings to to express that. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't realize it, it uh, in a big aha moment. You, you yeah, Montevideo, Montevideo yeah. was, in, you know, apart from the fact that we met. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's interesting. I like I like that as well. This idea of um, of helping people explore their kind of cultural identity and who they are and where they're from, uh, which is often the reason why people want to speak a language to be able to communicate that with other people and find out about other people as well. Yeah, ultimately, I mean, the, the first reason you, you learn a language is because you need to pragmatically connect, exactly. and, you know, buy coffees and all of that. But afterwards, yeah. as you say, you are somebody. Um, and if you are unable to communicate who you are, um, then I find that very unempowering. Whereas mm. being able to use, the, let's say, the, the global Sherman tank, which is English, actually to share about your culture and where you come from and i think that is tremendously empowering yes no, i agree with you that's interesting and so do you find that you have moved away from 
using art in particular to other areas of culture? You mentioned poetry before, or is it a combination of art, culture, uh, poetry, literature, etc.? Um, I I think I think the the um, the poetry and the literature um, are the sort of stock parts of the trade. What interests me more are, is, is the exploration of, of global issues, Think talking about water, talking about immigration, mm-hmm. talking about pollution, um, the effect of globalization. Um, th- those interest me even more. The others, because um, people say, you know, why use art? Mm-hmm. Um, there's personal taste. There's the idea of creativity. And so very often the acrostic poetry is a chance for my students to to be creative using the English language Mm -hmm. Um, or even to make their own paintings to illustrate, which is now much easier that you can use all kinds of digital tools to paint and then to talk about their painting and what it says and to use English to express that. So it doesn't stop with the creation of the painting. Um, but with describing what the painting is saying and why it's saying that. Um, so I think th- those are the two trends. For example, at school, um, we have a, a syllabus and you have to include a certain amount of literature. And if I can get art in that way, beautiful. I mean, I used a lot of art talking about Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the 18th century through to the 21st century, so I, I, tr- I try to get in art wherever I can. Mm. Interesting. And you mentioned creating art. Is that something you also encourage your students to do, to actually create their own art? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here I sort of take a step backwards as well, because maybe people who are listening are about mm-hmm. to switch off their brains and say, oh, no, you know, I can't draw or, oh, no, I don't know anything about art. And those are two real credos of mine. You do not have to be an art expert to use art in the classroom. Mm-hmm. You also do not have to be good at art. I'm lousy. I cannot draw to save my life. Um, I like to blame my father, who didn't like the fact that when I went to school, I turned out to be a left-handed person. <laughs> he encouraged me to become a right-handed person. <laughs> oh, really? With the result that I can't draw to save my life, and I do everything else apart from write with my light, with my left hand. So mm. let's get those two things out of the way. Um, so my students do not have to be art experts. They can't be art experts at the age of twelve to eighteen. Um, nor do they have to be creatively or let's say artistically gifted but they can create art Um, and as I said if there are various applications that you can use to create pictures or and and this was a lovely project that I did two years ago um, manipulation art manipulation now it's not new anybody um, who's seen the Mona Lisa thinks gosh this is the Mona Lisa Um, hopefully without the soup on it. Um, (laughs) But already Marcel Duchamp, sort of um, one of the surrealists, put a moustache on the Mona Lisa. So he manipulated the picture. Um, And there are other painters who have done that. I mean, if you think of Picasso, he actually did some bathers that reminded people of Cezanne's bathers. So this Mm. idea of manipulating a painting is not new. I invite my students digitally to manipulate a painting they like 
and to explain again to stand in front of the class and say what they've changed and why to for example a message about pollution or a message about beauty um so creating art from that point of view there always has to be some kind of linguistic um element so why not talk about what you've created or what you've manipulated interesting um the obvious thing i'm going to ask you now is about uh the new generative artificial intelligence tools that mm. have appeared that allow yes. people to create art without drawing at all yes. that, and in fact just using language you can create um some very impressive uh art and photographs mm -hmm. have you, is yes. that how do you feel about those is that something you've experimented not, with as well it, or it's it's not something that i've experimented with um but i find the idea um for my purposes mm. extremely interesting um because my student will then however they have created the picture however they've created the work of art they're going to have to stand in front of the class and talk about it um yeah. so and that's okay for me, for, for my purposes, and I find it a fascinating idea. I think um, in 10, in 20 years time, we're going to be asking ourselves, you know, who is an artist? What is an artist? Um, is um, AI's set of sunflowers going to be better, nicer, more successful than Van Gogh's sunflowers? Um, I think it, it's a fascinating thing. Yeah. I just I mean, hope there... that nobody's going to make a lot of money with it. <laughs> well, I, th I think that's already happening. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, I think there's there's a there's a case in the last sort of year or so. The well, last year I think there's a case of a of an artist winning a, an art competition uh, through mm. creating something through uh, one of these generative art uh, tools. Yeah. And it was submitted. He won the prize there's also photographers who've done this as well i think now yeah. um and they only admitted it uh after they won the prize so yeah. it is something that is is dividing the art world i think naturally there are mm -hmm. a lot of artists who feel very threatened by this but also yeah. uh, a lot of artists who feel that it's taking the kind of humanity out of what they do uh, if it's something's created by a machine yes 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 well whether it's a work of art or whether it's a work of literature yes as yes say, well the same is true de de dehumanizing dehumanizing um and dehumanizing what is otherwise totally idiosyncratic. I mean, every, every work of art, every work of literature, every poem is the creation of um, a person's experiences, of a person's way of looking at things, of a person's um, be it suffering or, or happiness. And that is something which I feel cannot be replicated by a machine. A machine can do a product. Yeah. but it can't have experienced everything that goes into the painting or into the work of art. Yeah, definitely. I think it, it's a fascinating, as, as a language educator, I think it's a fascinating thing at the moment that uh, you can bring into the classroom. For example, mm -hmm. you can bring into the classroom two pieces of art, one of them created by, by AI, one of them created by a human artist, mm. and just explore how the students for example feel about them without mm -hmm. revealing 
what which is which was written <laughs> which was drawn or which was created by the human artist and which by the machine and mm -hmm. then kind of reveal it yes and have yeah. the students uh kind of react to what they decided they preferred and whether mm -hmm. they change their mind and how they feel about it it's a fascinating discussion mm -hmm. i think yeah. That you can well, and, and the, the wonderful thing about using art um, is that there is no right answer. And that's yeah. also something I find very empowering for students. Looking, um, have, have you heard of um, visual thinking strategies? Um, yes. I'm, I'm not sure I have. I'm not sure I have. Please hmm. explain. Very, very, very interesting. I first came across that um, thanks to somebody who now works in Barcelona, um, mm. Kieran Doherty. Oh, yeah, and I know Kieran. You know Kieran. Lovely. Good. Yeah. Small heard, world English it language is, teaching. It is, exactly. <laughs> um, and I heard him talking about VTS um, and about Abigail Hoosen from mm. the Milwaukee Art Museum. And this idea that you there are three questions which you can ask um, somebody, which are, what can I see? How does it make me feel and why? And what more can I see? So you're inviting the student to go into the picture and seeing and seeing. And this idea of how does it make me feel and why is very interesting. Mm. I've taken that idea up um, and I've added a C to it. Now, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to think about what the C stands for. So visual thinking and cultural strategies. Okay. So what when I look at this picture, what does it, the way I look at a picture um, reflects my culture. So two people looking at the same picture are not going to be seeing the same thing in it. They're, they're not going to be reacting in the same way. And so there is no right answer. It's just a personal answer. So going back to your example of um, two pictures, one created by um, AI and one by a human artist, the students can very easily say, well, I prefer this one or this one makes me feel like this or, you know, what I can also see in this one. Um, and they, there's no right answer that one student is going to be right and the other one is wrong. And that in itself, I think, is something that encourages discussion. Yeah, definitely. I think this this idea at the moment of um, what's fascinating about it is it's taking us all taking us all by surprise. I think just how yeah. effective these tools are, mm. um, and where nobody really knows what is going to happen next, really. Mm. <laughs> <with them. laughs> and, there's a lot of talk about people's jobs being threatened, people's yes. livelihood being yeah. threatened. I mean, I already know as a as an anecdote, I know here in Mexico that an educational publishing company um, that one of my colleagues' partner works at, they've stopped using the freelance graphic designers now and have oh. employed a prompt engineer as the term goes yes. to use generative ai art tools to mm -hmm. actually create the graphic needs that they need they've done that because it'll it saves them money and it can be done quicker yeah yes well i must say it will save them money in one way but the fewer people you employ the fewer people 
are earning and can pay taxes which you need for society and the fewer yeah. people are going to be paying contributions i think the day that robots and ai have to pay tax um, and contributions <laughs> that's okay <laughs> yeah i'm not yeah. sure if that will ever happen but i do yeah. i do envisage a, a time when uh, we reach the time when you know the AIs are creating the art and literature, and they're also the ones reading the art and literature. And uh, that's a bit of a scary future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, I think it it does seem to be in the long term, this idea of creating ourselves is is to kind of, if you like, the next stage of evolution maybe who knows but that's a bit mm. beyond i think what what we can imagine yeah. at the moment but it, it it prompts a remark going back to montevideo in 2018 mm. one of the exhibitions that um i went to um was at a museum that you you might remember um mm. museo blanes oh yes yeah wonderful. exactly wonderful museum. Mm, wonderful museum um and there was an exhibition in there by a modern uh, modern artist um uruguayan called love um, I, I hope I've pronounced it properly because I think obviously of, of German origin originally, but um, mm. so of grandparents or something. Um, very modern stuff, but there was um, the title of the exhibition was Porque Why? Yeah. I mean, you know, why create painting? Um, and there was a, a caption saying that the future of a country is in its culture and the power to express itself. Mm-hmm. So. Um, we need to be aware of our culture and we need to have the power to express our, ourselves about our culture. It goes back to what we were saying a few minutes ago. Yeah. So I, I don't think that that is something um, that AI can do on its own. Mm-hmm. It's still, I don't know, presumably, it still needs somebody to ask the right questions, to put in the right input for it to create something. I mean, oh, the yeah. day AI can do without us, that's when we're worrying. <laughs> yes. No, I think that's what's interesting about this AI generative art, the, the tools that allow you to do that. I think what's interesting is that they require the, the output, the best output requires very well thought through um, input prompts yeah. the inputs yeah. mm-hmm. and the more you know about art and the effects that you want to achieve the better your prompts yeah. so actually you, it's almost as if to be an artist with these tools you need to have a good grounding in the history of art and techniques less that's more important than the actual ability to paint or to draw for example mm-hmm. and the ability to express yourself in words to create the art through them is what is needed which is mm-hmm. completely you know reversing what it was so it's quite interesting yeah um, and that makes me it makes me think also about kieran because um mm-hmm. he was the one who got me into this idea that um, there are no longer four skills in languages mm-hmm. in language teaching um there are six mm-hmm. because you've also got visual literacy and mm-hmm. visual representation um and this idea that you need to be able to put in a lot of good input it's not just about understanding but putting in more input be it written or visual um, and I, th- I think it goes back to, to what you just said, the better the input, the better the result. Yeah, The better definitely. you can understand something, 
the better you can then talk about it or create a picture about it. Yes, of course. But um, to pull thing, pull the conversation back to what you actually do with mm -hmm. your students in the classroom, I'd yep. love to know how you, maybe you could explain some of the activities that you do with art with your students or mm -hmm. and, and how you think teachers can use uh, mm -hmm. the idea of art or actual art in the, in the classroom. I'd love to hear mm -hmm. more about that. Okay. Let me, um, I'll start by um, referring back to the few strands of things that I've already referred to. Mm -hmm. um, for example, let, let's start with linguistic competence, um, yeah. where we can be, be looking at a very basic level um, at a picture and just saying, um, you know, what people are doing in the picture. You know, is this what they do every day? We're into tenses, mm -hmm. telling stories um, for tense, using storytelling um, as a way to encourage students to ask questions in past tenses. I have some uh, very nice paintings by a Swiss painter called Anka, where you mm -hmm. see a grandfather telling little children stories. Um, and there are, we look at structures like used to or would do things. It's just one example. Um, and we look at this and say, you know, what's going on here, etc. And then I encourage them to go back home and talk to their grandparents in whichever language. We have very multicultural classes in Switzerland. Mm. Ask the questions in whichever language they want to and then come back and tell people in the classroom about what life was like when their grandparents were children in another country. That then has to be told in English. So introducing a structure and then giving them a, a, a real task based on a painting um, and then coming back and talking um, about their grandparents um, experience that's one thing so all kinds of tense work mm -hmm. etc um, but also talking if you then want to talk about conversation strategies so you've got the linguistic strands and that's just one example of, of hundreds um, communication how do we communicate? I look at several pictures where, for example, there's a, a wonderful picture by Lowry, um, outpatients at Ancoats Hospital. And you see about 50 people sitting around waiting to see the doctor. And mm. Some of them are talking, some of them aren't. Um, and we start talking about, well, how in your language, how do people strike up conversations? Um, how do they interrupt each other? Do they talk to each other? You know, or is it bad form to actually talk to strangers? And, um, and very much in Switzerland, people keep themselves very much to themselves. Um, or um, I look at pictures from South America where you have crowds of people talking in a very excited way and say, wow, look, you can see the two ways of communicating are so different. Um, mm. And to make people aware of the cultural differences of how you communicate, of gesture. So that's another thing that can be done using art in that way. Um, looking at titles, going back to this idea that art is a very, um, very creative, very subjective, very personal. Showing students a painting, mm -hmm. well chosen, um, and asking students to give it a title. And then to explain why they've given the picture that title. Is it because of the mood? Is it because of what is happening? Um, and to see what different students pull out of a painting, which again is 
inviting them to speak in a creative way. Those are, you might say, slightly more ambitious ideas, but I'm a great believer in um, grade the task um, and not the language. So say to them, um, okay, we've been doing English for only um, a few months, but give this picture a title. And of course, the picture is going to be an easier picture. Might be a, a picnic or food or weather. Um, in Switzerland, you'd probably show a picture of snow and everybody mm -hmm. would say, wow, holidays, etc. Um, you'd show the same picture in a place where there is very little snow. People are going to think, oh, problems, driving, accidents. So this idea of giving a title to find out what people think about things. Um, there is an American artist, let me just think about his name, um, Lawrence, Jacob Lawrence, that's right. Mm -hmm. He did a series um, of paintings from 1940 to 41, it's 60 paintings, it's called the Migration Series, showing um, people moving from the south of the states to the north of the states um, mm -hmm. and their different experiences. I should imagine looking at a picture like that, some people might say hope, other yeah. people might say invasion. Right. Um, this this kind of thing. So using um, a picture to generate ideas and talk about why the picture gives you that particular piece of inspiration. Um, I work a lot with water mm -hmm. um, and with global warming. Um, I've worked with geographers, and this is why I find working with art so fascinating, because photography wasn't around in the 18th century. Yeah. It wasn't around at the beginning of the 19th century, and there are magnificent pictures of glaciers, of icebergs, that show us what places were like, and to enable students to talk about what's happening due to global warming. And then I can show them a picture, for example, at, um, outside the Tate Modern in 2018, there was an installation called Ice Watch, um, mm. where the um, artist, um, excuse my very bad pronunciation, um, Oliatia Eliasson, had chipped off chunks of ice from a Greenland iceberg um, and had put them outside the Tate Modern. And of course, they start melting. Mm -hmm. uh, to make people aware of what's happening. So I will use art in that way to talk about problems of, um, of global concern and say, this is what it looked like. Um, this is what it looks like now. What's happening? How has it happened? What do you feel about it? What can we do about it? Mm. Um, in the same way, industrialization. What has industrialization done to my country? Has my country benefited from it? Or has my country not benefited from it and from progress? Start looking at Lowry. Um, I had a, a very interesting experience at an exhibition oh, about 20 years ago, and I saw um, Lowry's picture. Lowry, um, paint, very famous painter from the 1950s, mm -hmm. and most of what we saw in, um, in the north of England. And there's uh, one painting which is called The, the Lake. And it looks completely wasted and dark and everything. I remember standing in front of that saying, oh, my goodness, this is China. And, of course, it wasn't China at all. It was in the 1950s in the north of England. So, yeah. again, helping my students 
talk about things which concern them, which also make them feel frightened. Um, immigration war. Um, we know what the world is going through at the moment. Very worrying times, very worrying times. Mm-hmm. I know there are teachers, I don't have to do this, thank goodness, but I know that there are teachers using art to help children um, who've been traumatized by conflict mm. um, and to talk about how they've been traumatized using pictures. That is extremely valuable as well. Yes, definitely. So the, there are some teachers who might be wary of bringing some of the subjects you've mentioned into the classroom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just um, you know, some of the things perhaps would be considered taboo by some mm-hmm. teachers. Yep, yep. Other teachers might be kind of afraid of what some of their students may come out with and mm-hmm. how they would deal with it. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest to teachers who are a bit wary of um, of that? Um, I think I would suggest to err on the side of, um, let me think of a good word for this. Be careful. Mm-hmm. I think, I, um, you can't go in straight away. Um, for example, 2015, um, the Guardian reproduced a picture of Jericho's Raft of the Medusa. And that was very shocking for many people. It's a picture that shows a raft that um, Mm. with people who have survived after a shipwreck, um, accusations of cannibalism among those people who survived, um, a very shocking painting because they wanted to talk about immigration. Mm. I don't think I personally would bring that into a class of 14 or 15 year olds. If I were to talk about immigration, I would probably take a picture of somebody staring out to space, maybe looking slightly lost um, Mm. and thinking and saying, well, this person has maybe changed countries. There are some very good paintings like that. So I think I would approach it with care. And of course, I'm, I'm speaking from my context, which is Switzerland, where even if people um, have come into the country and have had bad experiences, they are usually able to integrate um, into classrooms where people take care of them. And maybe in other parts of the world, that's not possible. Like I think in some parts of the world, it might be more difficult to talk about feminist issues. or more social issues so being careful being very very careful but on the other hand um i'm going to quote um something which has also um influenced me a lot i heard somebody speaking um in malta in 2018 um joanna norton i don't know if you know joanna norton i don't think i do very very interesting she has some excellent work using art teaching And she says, this is quotation, critical pedagogy is confrontational. We learn to confront difficult issues through art and representation. We see others' point of view, the relativity of it all. Um, Mm. And I remember when she said that, I scribbled it down and thought, this is so true. Um, We we tend to be over careful maybe today. Um, We're very careful in the classroom not to 
bruise other people's sensibilities, etc. You know, we put on our, our kid gloves, etc. But ultimately, that's not life. I think I think you have to know who your students are and to have built yeah. up a good dynamics with your students, a good relationship with your students. Um, yeah, and not be judgmental. No. especially if if you don't agree or if you have a different political viewpoint or a different Absolutely. social viewpoint from your students, mm -hmm. you can't kind of impose that upon them, can no, you? No, you can't, no. And and everything is so <coughs> relative. There was, a, there was a wonderful picture, another picture I saw in, um, in Uruguay um, by a Uruguayan artist called Torres Garcia. Mm. Um, oh, yes. And, and he turned the Americas upside down to show the relativity. There's a... Uh, it's a sketch, it's in a book, it's not even a painting. But he turned the Americas upside down. So That's South right. America was at the top and North America was at the bottom, saying it's also relative. You know, how would North America feel if it was in the South? Yeah. And how would South America treat the Southerners once it was in the North? Um, and I found that very interesting. So everything is so relative that we mustn't be judgmental. Um, and, and it yeah. goes back to this idea using art there is no right or wrong yeah we have a clock actually that uh, we bought as a, a memento of our time in uruguay mm. that has that on the um on the face of the clock but the hands I... of the clock run in reverse oh okay <laughs> <laughs> so it tells the time but opposite to clockwise it's anti-clockwise but the mm -hmm. numbers are placed in a way that it's always it tells the time in you know it tells the correct time but mm -hmm. it runs anti-clockwise and yeah. has that picture as as the face of it and actually one of the things you you mentioned the raft of the medusa yes. and i remember when i first came across that uh, it, it's a very striking image as you say yeah and I first came across it and I just wanted to know if you knew about this book in a book by a novel by Julian Barnes called History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters. Yes. Have you come across yes. that? Yeah. Yes, I have. Yes. And that was an insert in that novel. And I remember there's a lot written about that, that piece mm -hmm. of art in there. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And uh, it's fascinating. It, no, it, it is an absolutely fascinating picture. And I, the first time I saw it was in an exhibition. I just stood mm. in front of it. I oh, think wow. this goes back to another one of my hobby horses is that using art encourages our students to look. Um, because you know, nowadays we know, you know you've got a phone in your hand, you go flick through, flick through, flick through. You want to meet somebody, you go onto Tinder, you go flick through, flick through, flick through. And the idea that you actually have to look at something for a long time um, and be drawn into a painting, um, I think is very, very valuable. It, you know, that's one of the ideas behind the um, visual thinking strategies. And uh, a painting like Jericourt, uh, you just stand there and there's so much in there. Um, yeah. And then on the other hand, you um, go, for example, into a Juan Gris or um, a Mondrian, and all you can see are lines. And then yeah. your imagination can just be blown away to think, what is in there? Um, those are the two extremes. Yeah. Mm. I think also it, it's an interesting thing to do with children, I think, or, or teenagers, mm -hmm. yeah. because 
I think the world is, we have such a fast pace um, in our daily lives. And even when with children that we don't often take the time to kind of stop and stare at one single mm -hmm. yeah. image, yeah. for example, painted image. And as you said, there is, there, there's so much in many of these paintings that you can mm -hmm. actually observe or refer to. And I think it's quite a skill that a lot of, I would imagine children, teenagers today haven't developed because they don't spend the time actually just looking at a static image. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think the idea of creativity as well, the idea that people, it's a misconception, you have to be doing something the whole time, you have to be doing something the whole time, but actually the capacity to sit and be in inverted commas bored, not have anything to do, that's when your imagination starts working. And in yeah. the same way, when you're when you're looking at a painting, sitting there and looking and your mind gets drawn into the painting and linking that then to language production say so okay you've been looking at this for five minutes write down 20 words that sum up all the things that went through your mind and then develop those 20 words into 20 sentences um, and then share those thoughts and see who came up with the same thoughts with the same kind of sentences um, all coming from one picture. I think that's very, yeah. very important. Yeah. Sitting and taking time. Yeah. Instead definitely. of wasting it or spending it, just taking it. Or as you say, instead of just filling up the day with thing, you know, trying to do things, even if it mm. means trying to fill it with inputs like watching TV, etc. Mm. Yeah. I think I like that idea that like you said the uh, the kind of Put yourself in a position where you're not doing anything you just have to think mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. i think one really interesting thing that i've also done with students is tell them about my favorite painting i actually i have um two favorite paintings okay one of them is um a chagall painting yeah and it's chagall standing with his his feet planted firmly on the ground chagall um, a russian artist yeah. and his wife bella is sort of floating in the air she she's holding on to him but she isn't what you can see is they're two palms resting against each other and from the first time i saw that painting when i was 18 i thought this this sums up for me, the perfect relationship. There is, in a couple, you have one person who's on the ground, you know, they know what's going on, so pragmatic, and then the other person is floating around, realizing their ideas. It doesn't always have to be the same person. Um, you know, reverse your roles, you know, one day one person is the pragmatic one, the next day the other is pragmatic one. But just this picture of somebody not holding another person back or somebody not clutching onto somebody. Um, and I've come across that painting three times in real life, and each time I'm drawn to it. So I tell my students about this and say why I like the picture and what it means to me and, and where I saw it for the first time, where I saw it the second time, the third time. And then there's another picture um, by Diego Rivera, which shows people dancing in Mexico. Um, your neck right. of the woods, yeah. Um, and that sums up for me the joy of life. And I'm, I'm a dancer. I dance um, Argentine tango, and I just love dancing. And so it tells the picture really wakes up that side of me. And I ask my students um, as a project to say, 
you almost find a picture. I don't mind where you find it, you know, whether it's in a magazine or whether it's online, that you're interested in football, find pictures, paintings of footballers, um, mm. which is in fact, um, George Best, I think there were a couple of paintings of George Best. <laughs> right. <laughs> he was a Belfaster, wasn't he? Um, That's right. So tapping into that idea of personal taste and that a picture can accompany you through life. Um, that that that's every go, goes back to the um, Uruguayan experience. All these people suddenly talking about the little girl, and the picture that they'd been shown by their parents or at, at school. So I think that's showing students that you can have a favourite picture for a particular reason, and that you can talk about it. Yeah. What it tells you about you. That's interesting. It's funny you mentioned Diego Rivera. One of I think my favourite painting in Mexico that I've at least that I've come across so far is is a mural by him um, oh, called yes. Sueño de una tarde dominical en la Alameda Central. Yeah. Dream dream of a Sunday afternoon at Alameda Central Park. Yeah. And it's a huge mural that features um, lots of different characters and famous mm. people of that time in Mexico mm -hmm. yeah. and historical characters. And it, it's also one of the um, paintings that uh, helped create the kind of tradition or popularize the tradition of the Day of the Dead, the image of the oh, skull, right. etc., because yeah. that uh -huh. features very centrally in the painting. And it's something that it's, it used to be a mural in a hotel, mm -hmm. and then the hotel was knocked down i think and um because of, of of i think it's a 1985 earthquake in mexico city it was yeah. condemned yeah. and they moved the wall to a separate uh museum so it's on its own in the center of mm -hmm. mexico mexico city and you can go and visit it and it's a it's mm -hmm. a painting that you can just go back and back and back to because there's mm -hmm. so much in it so i think that's my my favorite painting at the moment is that basically you see you've got one and you can talk about it and yeah. what does it say about the picture what does it say about the place you live and what does it say about you two things um i've got two thoughts came if um into my mind as you were speaking sure. have i got have i got time to talk about them? of course yeah we've got lots of time <laughs> okay um first one um destruction and mm. you mentioned earthquake and my first thought was my goodness thank thank god the wall was saved um but very often paintings are the only witnesses of the past yeah um and i remember seeing an exhibition in um in zurich of drawings of palmyra and this was before palmyra was destroyed hmm. and then after it was destroyed thinking those are the only witnesses of the past of what Palmyra looked like. And in the same way, this is now a very personal um, thought. Um, after the Second World War, when Warsaw, the old town of Warsaw was destroyed, 90% mm -hmm. of it was destroyed. Um, Warsaw was rebuilt. Um, it was rebuilt by the people of Warsaw because it was so important to rebuild your cultural past. Mm. And what did they use? in order to reconstruct Warsaw, it was paintings painted um, by Bellotto, 
who was nephew of Canaletto, and he had been the official court painter at the royal court, and he'd done about 200 pictures of Warsaw, and he'd painted the old town of Warsaw in the 18th century. And those wow. are the paintings, and those paintings were almost lost, and then they were rediscovered, and they were used for the rebuilding of Warsaw. And then anybody who has seen pictures of the old town of Warsaw rebuilt is in absolute awe. Um, it, it's wow. wonderful. So pictures, paintings, or murals, um, as you were talking about Diego Rivera, being witnesses of the past and being saved from destruction. Yeah. And the, the other thing, you mm. are um, talking to a woman who's also very interested in women in art. Mm. Um, and you said Diego Rivera, so who do I think of? Frida Kahlo. Exactly. And With... she features in that mural as well, ah, very prominently. Ah. You'll make me, I want to go and Google it after, just have a good look at it. Mm. And then we think of people um, like Auguste Rodin, the sculptor. And one of his muse, well, I'm not going to use the word muse, because that sort of shows exactly what people thought about women in art. Mm. Um, uh, a co-sculptor, sculptor has been Camille Claudel, um, mm. but far more people until recently were aware of Rodin than of, of Camille Claudel. Um, and this idea of women in art and women's position in art, which the, the galleries now, I think it's past 10 years, have been looking at and saying, goodness, you know, we've got all these women hanging on the walls, usually mm. with very few clothes on, but how many women artists um, have we actually got whose paintings we've got? And obviously that is a, a changing dialogue. There are yeah. two exhibitions on in London um, about women artists. And I think there's a new one opening in April about sort of 400 years of women artists. Oh. Um, and I think it's the, is it the Tate or the National in London um, have just done an exhibition about the Gorilla Girls. Um, right. and this was in the 80s. Women... Um, dressing up um, as gorillas to try and bring people's attention to the fact that you know, where are the women artists? I think that's also very empowering. If you're, you're trying to talk about issues of, of gender and equality, look at two paintings, say, okay, one of these was painted by a man, one of these was painted by a woman. Can we tell which and why? Um, mm. Why do you think um, so few women artists were known um in in previous centuries what well, they weren't allowed into the studios why did mary shelley write when this is one theory why did she write frankenstein she wanted to be an artist but she she wasn't allowed into the artist studios women weren't allowed in the artist studios mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so she wrote instead she created her monster yeah. although i think he's not a monster he's a creature um mm. in words rather than painting so I oh i didn't know that that's really interesting mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, she was very aware because her, her two parents were very famous intellectuals. She was very aware of the um, the trends in um, at that time when she was writing. Mm. When she produced her first edition, what was it 1818, I think the first edition was, which wasn't even published under her name. Um, it was, it was published anonymously or even they thought it was Percy Shelley who had written it. And it wasn't until the 1831 edition, the third one, that her name actually went on the cover. Um, right. I didn't knew, know that. Yeah, she knew all about the artists and people. Jericho, um, his picture 
1815, I think it was um, first first seen, first displayed. Um, Jericot had been to all the morgues to study bodies and anatomy and everything. She couldn't do that, but she knew that that was happening. Um, she was aware of Fusli um, and all of his paintings. Mm -hmm. So she was aware of the painting, but she, she couldn't paint. She wrote. Um, it's, it's, it's all very, very interesting, you know, what women yeah. could do and couldn't do. Um, I think the interesting thing about Frankenstein and Mary Shelley is uh, it's quite, even to this day, when people are mentioned as being the, uh, who who are the first people to write uh, science fiction? Most people think of, um, <clears throat> I don't know, Jules Verne, H.G. Yeah. Wells, etc. Mm -hmm. But Mary Shelley predates all of them. Yes. The and first was... work of science fiction yes. uh, is by her, basically. Yeah. But it doesn't popularly recognize that a woman created the first science fiction novel still let, let by many people at the, let alone at the age of 18 exactly yes incredible she, she was 18 she was 18 when she wrote that I and mean, i've um frankenstein is um something i've worked a lot on i've worked a lot on with my students at school um i've done lectures at university on that um and the whole idea of frankenstein and what is monstrosity mm. um and why are we fascinated by monstrous figures and which ones are the monstrous figures are they ones that look monstrous or are they mm. the ones who look um like you and me but inside they're monstrous etc so we worked a lot on frankenstein but the thing in as you can imagine in a swiss context mary shelley was 18 and she wrote this wonderful story um in geneva so on the lake of geneva and so tell that to Swiss students, you know, how old are you? Aha, uh -huh, okay, looking at my, my women students, so how old are you? Yeah, have you ever been to Geneva? What? Well, just imagine, go to Geneva, sit down and write Frankenstein. So, <laughs> it really brings, as you say, the first work of um, science fiction created by an 18-year-old. Where did it come from? And all that based on a bet by Byron, who didn't think that um, she would be able to do it. And the publishers certainly didn't. It was basic, you know, what's a nice girl like you writing a story like this? No, you didn't write this. It must be your father or your husband who wrote this. Right. Yeah. So, yes, Mary Shelley. In incredible. Well, mm -hmm. thanks to Byron for making the bet. Yes. We've well, uh, all benefited from that. Yeah. And, you know, he who laughs last, or she in this case, she who laughs last, lasts longest, because she outlived Shelley, you know, because he mm. went for that stupid swim. She outlived Byron. And so in the end, who was in charge of the final editions of Shelley and her own Frankenstein and her own writings? Mary Shelley herself. Mm. So she outlives them um, and can finally... Um, create that um, third editions of the 1831 edition published under her own name she could put back the things that percy shelley had taken out in the first edition um, and she could take um credit for creating the novel it's an incredible novel i'd encourage yes. everybody to read it at least three times <laughs> oh i think i think you've already inspired me to go back and read it <laughs> again i think i'm not sure if i've read the original i've definitely read adaptations of it in in the past so i should go mm. back and read something more mm. 
and 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 it's again this is one of these themes um where there is um is it Hannah Hoch it's a German artist who created collages by cutting up pictures um and creating a picture of um one particular woman um or at least the head the bust um and it looks so in inverted commas monstrous that it's actually attractive and it's a bit like a bulldog I mean, if you look at a bulldog it's not a, excuse me to anybody bulldog owners out there um a bulldog is not the most attractive dog to look at but you look at them so long and you think oh he's so sweet or she's so sweet and this idea that monstrosity can actually end up being endearing or it can um actually repulse us and there if we think about um reconstruction surgery you think about the first world war and all these soldiers who came back from the first world war or right through to any war um people whose faces have been reconstructed how we react to that how do we react to people who have been put together again we're back with frankenstein i mean he was put together mm. um mm, very interesting topic there monstrosity yes at, yes so um to as we started talking about literature um what about more modern literature and mm -hmm. do you use modern writers poets with your students and are there any that you recommend that work really well mm -hmm. um let's let's start with um i'm going to name a particular author sure. and um that's tracy chevalier Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I mentioned Tracy Chevalier is because her Girl with a Pearl Earring um, oh, yes. a long time ago is the thing that started me off with literature and art. Mm. Um, and I'd been given the book by um, my godfather with the most beautiful dedication, um, who said um, to, um, to a pearl of a girl about a girl with a pearl earring, written by a pearl of a writer or something like that. And I read that. <sighs> and then I thought, wow, you know, all these pictures that are described in, um, in this novel. Um, and this is now no, no longer an original idea. So many people have done it. And it. But the idea of looking at paintings that are mentioned in novels, and that set me off combining um, poetry, um, not so much poetry, but paintings and literature. And that particular project, because um, I know you might be asking me about Clill later, yeah. I did a project for the first time in Norwich. Um, we went um, to Nile with a group of Clill students for three mm -hmm. weeks. And we'd read Girl with a Pearl Earring. We'd looked at all the paintings and everything. And then we went to Holcomb Hall, which is a stately home. And there are masses of paintings in there. And I said, right, you're going to go around and you're going to choose a picture. You're going to take a picture, um, you know, a photo of it, and you're going to write um, a story, a short story, or a poem about it, as if you were the painter, or as if you were the person being painted. You know, very much like the girl with the pearl earring. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I would use our, um, for example, Tracy Chevalier is somebody that I've used a lot. Um, I try to use more modern writers, obviously. Um, I've used a lot of Julian Barnes. You've mentioned mm -hmm. Julian Barnes. Um, trying to, you know, one of these things where the, the titles and the authors go out of your head, but you can remember the scenes. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but very, very often, 
giving um using the more let's say not so much the canon but works which i think students have to have read before they leave school right um animal farm being one of them frankenstein yeah. being another one of them um, and several more and then asking students um in reading projects to read more modern stories more modern novels and there obviously they can't go and find them they don't know about them so i asked my students to write me what kind of books they write reading in in their home language so in, in german or in, in french and say what kind of things do you enjoy reading about what are the topics what are the topics that you don't like what's the kind of novel you know do you like open-ended novels do you not like open-ended novels and um they give me that and then i think of about five six seven eight titles mm -hmm. that they could read and i suggest them i say look Go and just check these out, you know, use Wikipedia, use Goodreads to find out what they're about, and then come back in two weeks' time and tell me which two books you've chosen to read um, for your discussion with me and for a group discussion where there will be four of you and me listening to you talking about novels. And that works quite well in a way to introduce them to modern authors, but coming from them. Now they, they supply me with the the topics that they're interested in, and then I suggest the books to them. Whereas the other ones, I suggest the books. I say, you've got to read this. You're not leaving my class um, with a certificate in your hand if you haven't read this book. And I find that's quite a good way to combine modern authors and let's say more established ones. Ah, good, good. And so you mentioned uh, just now CLIL, so that's mm -hmm. content. Yeah. And language integrated language learning, integrated learning yeah. which I know that you're um, particularly interested in as well. So, honey, I'd love to hear more about what you think is the best way, to, how to best to approach this, the best age group, minimum level of language, etc. Because these are all things that are of concern to anyone who mm -hmm. is interested mm -hmm. in Clue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I find the concept that there is a best age to do something rather difficult. Mm -hmm. um, I can speak from my own experience that when we started up, we were part of a pilot project in the canton of Zurich in 2002. My school joined the project, um, but it actually started in 2000 in the canton of Zurich for using English um, and learning English immersively. Mm -hmm. um, so some subjects at school, um, history, maths, biology, were taught in English um, and the others were, were taught in German. Um, and the project started more or less at the age of 14 and moved into 18 when they leave school with their school leaving with their Matura certificate. Mm -hmm. um, the subject that they started with was maths because actually that that's when you need least language because mathematics is the language so they got used to being asked to do things in english but not have complicated philosophical discussions then they went into biology doing more things but having to read up about processes and then they um, went into history um, which is obviously the most difficult because the most source material and having to discuss complicated um, political and, and, and other issues. So one thing is not trying to get students, children to do things which they wouldn't normally do at that age. Mm -hmm. 
So don't say we're going to teach history to 12 year olds, I think, because what history are you going to be teaching them? What can they understand? Um, possibly we chose to go to Norwich after our students had had two years of immersive teaching, not before. And people said, you know, wow, that's really late, etc. And our idea was after two years of immersive teaching, they would have had so much input and they would have heard so much. It'll all be inside. Then they go to Norwich for three weeks and they speak and they suddenly start being able to use this language. And that certainly has worked very, very well. 20 years down the line, our school still goes to Norwich. Our school still participates in the same project. They still go to Nile. Wonderful. So I'm doing some advertising for <laughs> there for Tom, but also a great thanks to, to Dave Allen, who I know is a personal friend of yours, because yeah. um, we built up that project together. That worked for us. So when you ask me the best age, there are schools in Zurich that start teaching immersively um, in at the age of 12. Mm -hmm. One thing which I have, um, I'm not quite sure what I think about two non-native parents speaking to their children in English because they think that their children are going to be in an advantage later. Um, I'm going to tell you an anecdote out of my own life um, mm -hmm. and leave you to draw the conclusions with what I've just said. Um, my sister and I um, both spoke Polish at home. Um, right. And that was a very important to our parents for various reasons. So when we went to school, um, our English wasn't brilliant. And we also played with Polish children, etc., um, etc. Et my parents, um, both for my sister and for myself, went to the headmaster of the primary school and said, look, we're a bit worried about this. Should we start speaking um, English with our mm -hmm. two daughters? And the headmaster, I mean, he was absolutely brilliant. Um, apparently, he said, no, please do not speak English to them, because with all due respect, they're going to be kicking up a strange accent and possibly not learning everything properly, but they're going to be learning everything they need to learn at school. And, and that's true. Um, I think my English is reasonable. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so the idea of CLIL, um, I think is excellent. I think it depends where you are in the world. Um, but I would never, and going back to the so non-native parents who speak English because they think it's going to give their students or their children an advantage in life, that means that you're not giving them their native tongue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that for me is also very important. I mean, what I, I grew up bilingual, basically. And what I learned from that um, is the relative, relativity of all culture. It made learning every single foreign language since much easier. I speak seven foreign languages. And I think the fact that my parents insisted on speaking Polish with me um, has helped a lot in learning those other languages. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the younger you learn a second language, the easier it is to learn others, isn't mm -hmm. it? I know it's as an adult true, trying yeah. to learn Spanish that that is mm. the case, I think. I wish I'd learned it when I was younger. Mm. But I think you have to be very careful of mixing languages. Of um, mm. One of my younger cousins ended up speaking a mishmash of Polish and English and not knowing which was which. 
Right. So I think that in any context, be it in CLIL, where you go into the classroom and say, oh, this is the classroom here, I speak English, what I hear is English, what I read is English. In the same way, um, at home, uh, children need to know, ah, oh, whatever comes out of my mother's mouth is, for example, um, Spanish. If it comes out of my father's mouth, then it's Turkish. Um, right. And they learn to distinguish. Um, I think that's very important. If the younger you start, the better. But if there's more than one language involved, the child has to know which language is associated with which person. Um, that's very, very important. And there's there's very good work being done on sort of multilingualism and children's plurilingualism. Um, I think this is also very important. So don't mm, clear yes. This is a very personal opinion. Clear mm -hmm. yes but not at the expense of a child's own culture. Right. Um, also, I mean, going back to my interest in, in culture, in art and culture, um, everybody should be able to speak English, yes, but not then forget their own native language and pass mm. that language down because um, a family has three children, they all forget to speak their native tongue and then one of those children is really drawn to the country of origin um, and they find they can't speak to their grandparents yeah because there isn't a common language so yes so when you say the best age to learn i agree with you as early as possible but not at the expense of other languages as early as possible but signposting exactly which person speaks which language so the child doesn't get confused because learning two languages at once is strenuous on a brain. But children are very good at it. They adapt, obviously. Um, and um, learning Spanish at a later age, yes. You carry on learning. You're in Mexico now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I'm, uh, sure you, I'm sure you speak excellent Spanish. Well, it could be better. But that's only because uh, I haven't... Uh, spent enough time trying to get it get it better but um i think my next challenge is definitely portuguese uh, i need, really need it i need to speak portuguese for work i think uh, right brazilian portuguese yes so i'm going to well i've in theory i've already started but i haven't really so mm. i'm going to actively start learning and speaking that. i'm going to brazil <laughs> next week so i need to uh that that's always a good reminder whenever i go it's like i i'm always reminded i really need to uh to mm -hmm. to, to learn this and and speak it and i think w w there you're addressing the issue of motivation and, mm. and be it clear and be it an adult um motivation is going to help you learn so oh, yeah. how can we motivate our students and if i to go back to the idea of art motivating them because art is creative and drawing art in creatively um there is no right answer so i'm motivated to give my thoughts to share my thoughts mm. motivation not losing your own culture and then pragmatically you need to learn portuguese somebody else needs to learn english um yeah so I think motivation in, in all ways is so important, but that's a, another, that's another interview with somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> and Hania, just to, yes. to finish off, yeah. what about, what about, 
the languages you speak. Mm. Do you have any desire to learn another one, or do you think you now have enough? You said seven languages that you yeah. speak. Um, I don't think you can ever have enough languages. Mm. Um, well, let me, let me give you the list. Um, it's Polish and English as, as mother tongues. Um, mm -hmm. And Polish, I, I studied um, up to A level mm -hmm. as well. So um, Polish written and read as well. Um, then along came French, then along came German and, and Swiss German, which is very different to German, as you will mm -hmm. see with Portuguese and Brazilian Portuguese. Yeah. Um, and um, then along came Italian, then along came Spanish. But they, they're all the same thing. I mean, I really admire people who can speak a language with a completely different alphabet. Mm -hmm. So yes. if now th this is... Um, Possibly in, in the current world situation, th this is not a, a particularly good idea. Um, I'd love to learn Russian. Right. Because I'd love to be able to read Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and, and Pushkin in the original. Um, and I've, I've got a head start through Polish. I mean, I just of have course. to learn the alphabet. So Russian would be the next one. And in fact, um, when I was choosing, because I learned Spanish immersively, I went to Madrid to learn it immersively. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was thinking if I'm, this was to do with the CLIL project at school, thinking, okay, I want to do exactly what my students are going to be doing, learning a language immersively, which is it going to be? Spanish, um, so thinking because I could speak French and Italian, or is it going to be Russian because of Polish? And then I chose Spanish because I thought it would be more practical, not because I wanted to teach it, but, um, Russian is somewhere in, in the background, but to read the big authors, you know, I, I can't yeah. imagine being able to read Tolstoy in the original, of course. not in translation. Probably not something that I'd recommend you do immersively at the moment, though. No. <laughs> Russian to learn Russian. <laughs> that's why I said, that's why yeah. I said. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's always a shame when the world changes and, and the things yeah. that you think, uh, I, I've always wanted to, to visit Russia and have yeah. put it off. Uh, yeah. Before I went to Uruguay, I had the opportunity of doing some teacher training um, in Russia, in Siberia, yeah. believe it oh, or not. Yes. And That's we had this idea, me and my yeah. wife, to take a, this mm -hmm. Trans-Siberian Express to, Ooh, uh, yes. to and end up there and then spend some time teaching there. And in the end, the job offer to work in Uruguay came up so we never got to do it and it's always been on those, that list of things of um, you know on the bucket list if you like mm, uh, mm. and now it looks even more difficult to be able to imagine doing that in the near future anyway. Yes well I must say that from the point of view of where we are at this very moment I'm glad you chose to go to Uruguay otherwise we would never have met <laughs> yeah. and I wouldn't be talking to you about art on the radio you of sitting course. in Mexico and me currently sitting in the south of France. Yes. <laughs> I didn't realize you're in the south of France now I thought you were I'm in at, Zurich. Yeah. Um, I, I moved between Zurich and, and the south of France ah, because okay. um, there's the one thing I need to correct on the bio. Um, I worked at school. I, I've just retired. So I'm not oh, right. at school okay. anymore, which gives me a lot of freedom. Um, and so I move, you know, I spend six months in one place, six months in the other, sort of across the year, yeah. which is very nice. Um, 
and it's giving me the chance i have um one 12 year old very gifted musician who has to learn english obviously she's up for an international career um mm. and um i suggested to her parents that i taught her english through art oh wow and this is the most and this is the most wonderful thing i'm t i'm you, what i've been talking to you about i do with this student um, okay. and it works it works and I, I would love to try and bring this into a museum here locally or or simply just to talk about it. I mean, I've, I've done lots of talks. You mentioned you know, I, I talk internationally and I've done lots of stuff. Um, and I did one um, plenary in Greece, um, TESOL Greece, in the middle of COVID and realizing the potential of doing things via Zoom, the potential yeah. of doing things online to share my ideas. And I've shared all my ideas with my my teacher trainees, and I know Great. there are some out there doing really good work. So that that would be my my next project to be able to speak to more people about this and and convince them that English through art is a wonderful way um, to deal with all the the horrible things going on in the world. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, I wish you all the best of luck with the, these new projects and with learning thank Russian. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and you with Portuguese, Brazilian thank Portuguese. Thank you very much. Honey, mm -hmm. it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, it's been thank great to be able to me. catch up and, uh, mm -hmm. and talk and thanks for sharing very generously all of the ideas and, and the way that you uh, approach art and culture with the uh, teaching uh, of languages. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. My pleasure. Thank you very, very much for inviting me. Okay. Thank you, Graham. Bye. Thank you. Enjoy the Bye. rest of your weekend, honey. You too. And so, everybody, that brings us to the end of today's Twilight Show. Many thanks, as I said, to today's house, uh, guest, Hania Bosiek, and all of you who joined us live. Thank you also to all of you who are listening back to the recording. And so that's it for me. There are Teachers Talk radio shows all week on all manner of interesting and exciting topics so please listen in live or to the recordings and i hope you will join me again next week at the same time bye for now this show is brought to you in partnership with john cat educational publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world have you checked out their latest releases use the code jcttr 2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our Study Skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the EtonX curriculum in your school for free. Visit EtonX.com to find out more. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time. 
on Teachers Talk Radio.